welcome to episode two of Penny Red. Today's episode features an interview with Karen Twelves. Before we get to that, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who downloaded the show and for the encouraging and positive comments that I received during the week. If you want more information about the show or about the game Victoria, go to pennyredpodcast.com or hazardgaming.com respectively. This evening, I've got with me Karen Twelves, twitter.com forward slash K12s. How's it going, Karen? It's good, thanks. I noticed that your uh, Twitter handle pick is a delightful uh, rodent of some kind eating a mini carrot. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know where I found that. I just kind of find it hilarious. I've heard that those mini carrots are actually regular-sized carrots that some technicians whittled down to mini size. Have you heard that as well? I have. It doesn't make them any less delicious. I, I eat them a lot. I think they must be able to get a few of those mini carrots out of a full-sized carrot, so it may well be uh, quite economical. In any case, I don't think I could uh, bring myself to take the time to do it. Perhaps a machine does it. <laughs> All right, well, for those of you that uh, don't know who Karen is, that may or may not be a large or a small part of the audience, depending on who tunes in, but um, for the sake of posterity, my first question is, how long have you been a role player? I have been role-playing for about, we'll say, 15 or 16 years, I think, since high school. You say high school, so I'm imagining that some people were role-playing, maybe even a, a uh, brother or a sister or perhaps a parent or even a boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> no, no, it was a, a, a school friend of mine uh, came up and was like, hey, have you ever heard of Dungeons & Dragons? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, do you want to play? And I said, okay. And, uh, and then I was in a group um, with about five people for, you know, the rest of high school, and it was a lot of fun. Sounds uh, like a fairly, a fairly, hopefully that's a common thread that people can uh, identify with. Probably mostly it was friends that got them into the game, but have you ever been in a situation where you've had a boyfriend-girlfriend at a table together and they've uh, broken up? No. The funny thing is, is when I was in high school, my group actually was two other couples and me. And there was never any relationship problem that came to the table. And, and, you know, they stayed in those relationships for the, I guess, the three years or so that we gained. So I don't think they're in those relationships now, though. But um, it stayed out of the uh, the game room, so that was good. <laughs> yeah, I've never actually played with uh, in that sort of situation myself. I, did, did, the, um, did the chaps or the girls sort of play extra nice with the characters of their partners, or was it... Uh... Was it just a free no, fall? they tried to keep it pretty fair, and I think most most gamers that I know will um, tease a, a couple pretty hard if they go easy on the other one for that particular reason. So um, I, th- I think it was all all in good fun and fairness. I don't think it requires people to be in a relationship. If they hold back in the least little bit, then they're teased mercilessly. At least they are with the group that I play with. So uh, what are you yeah. playing now? Uh, well, right now I'm actually in three um, ongoing campaigns of just meet, like maybe every month um, if we can, which is Pathfinder, which is like uh, D&D 3.5 but better, uh, Smallville, which is a, a lot of fun, and Eclipse Phase, which is a sci-fi. I don't normally play a lot of sci-fi, but um, I wanted to play with some friends, and that's what they were doing. So I'm liking it. It's it took me a while to get into the setting, but I'm, I'm pretty much enjoying it. I also do um, a lot of one-offs of, like, Fiasco. I like Apocalypse World a lot. Um, sometimes um, I have a friend who's like, hey, I want to, I you know, try something new that I've never heard of. So do those for, for one-offs. But those are my three basic campaigns that I'm in right now. I think that the chap that designed Eclipse Phase ran a session at Gen Con. Uh, this last year, or maybe it was Origins the year before, but I was in there with a group of guys and uh, he developed this scenario to sort of illustrate his, his method of uh, operation. Yeah, it, I mean, it's really like anything goes. You can be you can be a human if you want to be boring, or you could be a swarm of animatronic bees. Like, And, you know, you shouldn't get too attached to being in your body, and, in, and so in that case you shouldn't get too attached to your character sheet because you can upgrade and modify and change all your stats and you can go to another planet but leave your body at the other one and so then you have new stats so there's a lot of number switching that goes around in the game so it can be if you if you don't like having to keep up with all that then it's not for you but it is kind of fun yeah i have uh, never really had a good experience with a with a sci-fi uh role-playing game the very first game that i played was uh, actually traveler and 
I, I think I've told the story in my blog, but I'll, I'll, I'll rehash it here. I think that uh, I spent a long time making my character, and, and what you can do is, if I remember rightly, you can stay uh, in character development for more or less time. The longer you spend in character development, the older your character is, uh, but the more skills right. they have. And, and if you, you, you have a good chance of dying in character creation. Yes, that's right, and that's what happened to me. So I spent a long time creating this character and then died before I got a chance to play. So I said, okay, role-playing is not for me. And uh, I've never gone back to uh, never gone back to Scythe. I think I was emotionally scarred after that. Yeah, I I played a little bit of Pathfinder, and I definitely had to accept that that like okay, well if I want my character to be good at anything, they're going to come out of character creation fifty, like having worked about four different jobs, you know, possibly being dirt poor. Like it, it's it's definitely. It shakes loose any of that hope that you might have had of, like, statting out some really, really cool character because it's just completely beyond your control. You're rolling to see, like, and did I survive the war? Yes, I did, but I lost an arm. Okay, so my character doesn't have an arm. And that's not, like, a good thing. Your character is actually missing an arm now. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I was going to campaign that game, actually, and it kind of fell apart, which was a shame. I think if you can get through character creation, then it, it could be fun. Do you find that games that put a lot of emphasis on character creation up front are something that you like, or do you prefer it to get started quickly and start playing, or are you are you somewhere in between? Well, I mean, if I'm playing at a convention, I, I want to start going. I, there, I think that there's certain games that require lengthy character creation, like um, Dogs in the Vineyard, you know, has scenarios built into the the care gen in in what you know you're you're adding special things you actually play out a couple scenes as part of the character creation and so that does take time but that's part of it but it's still a little frustrating to spend all that time but you you feel like you're still not at the the meat of the of the session yeah that's something that i always struggled with it used to be my my pet peeve was going to play a game it starts tonight you spend the whole first session making a character and you've got to wait a week to start so in some respects that sort of informed the decisions that i made with victoria i wanted character creation to be as as quick as possible uh to have plenty of opportunity to develop a background but not take so long that you couldn't you know play during that during that first session yeah, and I agree with you absolutely at conventions. You don't want to spend time, you know, making a uh, character. I think I was, uh, one of the games at Gen Con, I was in a room with some people that, I think it was sort of like a, a campaign where you could pay to plan it or something, and the, mm-hmm. the one of the guys was very excited about being able to make a, play a role-player sandwich or something like that. So I, um, I don't know if that's quite for me, but, but yeah, I think that getting started straight away is, is probably probably pretty important. Um, so what would you say you've, your favorite book or supplement was? It doesn't necessarily have to be a game that you play currently, but uh, what you really something that you really love. Oh, that's something I really love. I don't know. Um, I mean, right now, something I really, really love is, is Fiasco and Apocalypse World. Those are kind of the two things I'm, I'm really into because I, I find that they're very versatile. Um, Fiasco, you can, you can run with all sorts of different scenarios and and so it's really simple rules and you can run any type of game with it and and apocalypse world just has so many hacks coming out it's also a game that i find really easy to you know pick up and and start playing and make a character real quick so i like both of those for you know a game night with with friends or or for a really quick pickup game um and i'm really into both of those right now I'm, I'm notoriously bad at buying books. I, I own maybe three game books, which is really awful um, because I just can't I can't afford it. So um, I think, yeah, I think those are the ones that I've really invested a lot of money in. Another one of my favorite games um, is called Midsummer Mischief. It's a huge LARP, and it's based on the P.G. Wodehouse um, novel World. Nice. And um, I I played it once, and then I, I tracked down the guy that wrote it and got him to send it to me, and it was in some file. It was unpublished. It was in some file that wasn't even Word. It was like Lotus or something. Like I had to download something to convert <laughs> it into Word so that I could run it again. And um, and that was super fun. It was like the most complicated thing I've ever pulled off, and, and I don't know if I could do it again. I think that's a really rich area for uh, for LARPing. I would say that whole Jeeves and Worcester world 
Did you ever see the British series with uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie in it? A little bit, yeah, I did. Everybody likes putting on fake English accents and uh, pretending to be <laughs> pretending to be posh. I think it's uh, something that most people have got a pretty good handle on it. So if I go to the opposite end of that uh, scale, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? <laughs> That's hard because I, you know, I don't think I know all the games out there, particularly the bad ones. Um, there are some games that I don't really like, and I almost don't want to say them because there's lots of people that really, really do like them. And um, I don't want to create any enemies. But <laughs> I, I hear that, that Hackmaster is pretty lame, so I guess we could get rid of that. I'm, I'm not a fan of any game that's too number crunchy. Right. Uh, that requires too much math. Um, it, it bogs everything down and it confuses me. And um, so any, anything that's too, too complicated in, in its roles, I really don't want to play. Yeah, I don't have a terrible memory, but... I find it difficult when I'm playing a game and I've been playing for three or four sessions and I still have to ask the, the GM what it is that I need to roll. So, yeah, something with a, with a simple system would, uh, would definitely be preferable over something that's incredibly complex. So if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? Oh, player, for sure. I mean, I really only GM'd a few games, um, and I was a really bad GM in college. I was awful. I did all the things that you're not supposed to do. So I stopped. Um, and then... I've only recently um, kind of run a few games here and there. Um, so I, I would definitely want to be a player. Okay, so what's the perfect number to role play? Whether you're being a, a, a GM or a, or a player, what do you think the perfect number is? Let's see. I, I wouldn't do more than six at a table. So that means four, maybe five players plus a GM. Right, yeah. My, I always feel that, that the magic number is is four, a, a game master, yeah. and then and then three hours. I've run successful games with with just two players, but I think that having that third um, that third player adds an interesting dynamic to the whole thing. One of my mm-hmm. favourite games that I, I ran was one that had two uh, players and one one GM because I I really quite like crime fiction, and you know having the not quite buddy cop movie type thing because it was sort of a dark world of darkness sort of scenario but having just two guys like that really works pretty well and if you've got some good role players people that are prepared to do a little bit outside of you know like just following the storyline directly it's actually quite good but as you say i think six is probably too many at a table and a gm so yeah five between three and five probably players is, is ideal for me there, there are some games actually like dogs in the vineyard is really really good with three uh, because you can do cool things with three people. There's kind of like like special moves that you can do with the three of you. Which you can, um, if the three of you are all kind of agree on something, you can kind of make it be so. You can you can say, well, that is actually you know the law now. Um, the fun thing is actually if you do have four, then you don't all have to be unanimous on everything. Right. So like three makes it fun because it's like we all have to agree on this, guys. But if it's four, then it's like, well, three of us have to agree on it, and screw you, guy that we don't like. Right. Uh, so that puts in conflict. But sure. uh, it is a game that kind of suggests three. Right. I've not actually played Dogs in the in the Vineyard before. I've only touched on it peripherally. But uh, do you find that it's got legs? Because in the past, you know, games that have been super, super hot haven't lasted as being sort of enduring favorites. Is, do you think it's got legs as a game? Oh, I mean, I think it's so much fun, and I think it's a great game to campaign because it's a lot about um, testing the, the limits of what you kind of say is acceptable. You know, you're, you're both part of the community, but you're outside of the, the community. You're, you're a kid that's been, you know, trained in, in the Book of Life, but you're, and you're also kind of the law, but you're young, and when you show up in a town, you know, the, the people of the town look to you for, um, for guidance, for spiritual guidance, and, and for, like, elucidation of, of um, in, interpretation of Scripture. And you kind of go and you check in and you set things right and make sure that people are doing what they should be doing, not being evil and, you know, resorting to witchcraft or going all crazy. And, you know, and um, so it, it, it puts you in this weird position where um, you're, like, too young to have the authority that, that you have. Mm. And, and you, it'll do something like it'll say, you know, and, and you know everybody. Everybody's your, your, your relative. 
You go sure. in there and you go, okay, well, your uncle has completely snapped. Oh, yeah. Um, because his wife got caught in a uh, crossfire of, of a gunfight, and he's decided that um, she got hit because God decided that she was um, unclean. Right. So God stops bullets for good people, but punishes those who are bad. So to test this theory, he's just going to start shooting wildly at people <laughs> to see who lives and dies. And you're like, well, okay, that's kind of crazy. So if you, if you stop that... So. You know, and you say, all right, God does not stop bullets. Law, done. This is how it goes. You go to the next town. You know, like, okay, so you said, you know, that that was, that was how it worked over there. But now I'm going to take that, that idea and, like, push it even further and make you question it even more and put you in an even, like, more pressing scenario. So that requires all the – it sounds like that type of game requires all the players to be, you know, seriously invested. I don't know if you have any rules about people using cell phones or or any type of stuff at the table, do you? No, I mean, I think mostly common courtesy is if you have to – you know, if you have to take a call, which you really shouldn't, step away from the table. Like, please don't text. You know, stay present and put your energy into what's happening. You know, at the table. I, I think that's common courtesy. I think any game requires that. Oh, for sure, for sure. But do you think that Dogs in the Vineyard, um, say for example, is the sort of game that requires? people that are really keen on making a good role-playing experience because one of the things that I wrote about in my book was, you know, like the different types of role-players there and making sure that uh, making sure that everybody's happy. And, like, for example, could you run Dogs in the Vineyard with uh, somebody who was just playing because their boyfriend and or girlfriend was playing? Like, do you need everybody to be invested? Oh, I, I think you could because I, I think it's – that game in particular I don't think is particularly, you know, stats-heavy. You, you're not trying to do it to get experience points and to better your character. You're really doing it to, to build the story and build the relationships and just amp up the tension between the, the player characters and have lots of fun player versus player. Yeah, that's the sort of game that I think that, that lasts the best. You know, where you've got uh, – uh, when, I, when I read fiction, I prefer – Stories that have sort of a con- have a continuing narrative in the background, like I read Ian Rankin's uh, Inspector Rebus story, and having that that background of what's going on in his life as a backdrop to the crime that he's investigating at the time, I think makes the story more interesting. It's more about character than it is about story. And if you can get a couple of good role players or three good role players that are really interested in, in developing that story through the interaction of the characters. I think that's probably the most rewarding role-playing experience that uh, I've been involved in. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you GM or when you GM or, as your opinion on GMs, do you think that GMs should or shouldn't fudge roles? It, it's funny because I was talking um, to people about this uh, a little while ago. I was I was in a game... Um, that was it was a horror game and it was it was very frustrating because it was built into the plot of the story that something was supposed to happen that I had zero control over and it was very frustrating for me as a player to be to to be like well I can't I mean I can't even fight back I can't even roll and you just tell me it fails and I'll accept the failure like why don't I just hand over my character sheet and you can tell me what happens to me because I don't really feel like yeah, I think that's the right yeah that's the, the sort the question, of the question came up like, well, should the GM have let me roll even though he knew that nothing was going to come of it? And you know, I'm not sure if that was really the the right thing to do or not. I I think it depends on what's best for for the the player and also what's best for the story. I was in a con game that went it had an hour and a half combat session. It was a four-hour game, <laughs> hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> that session, we were going thirty minutes into my lunch break. Yeah. I was I was very cranky because I had low blood sugar and was like, this needs to have ended a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And I think that's a death was, for a con game. I, yeah, it was frustrating, and I was just thinking, you know, the GM doesn't need to roll for every mook. Yes. And he could just say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna. I'm going to roll for all these guys together or just kind of let us win because obviously he wanted us to win. Yes. And it was a con game and, and it would have really sucked if we had lost, but, you know, that would have been what happened. But it, it just seemed really 
frustrating that we were still going. And I, I thought in that point, like, it would have been better for the players and better for the game for the GM to just kind of let us win. Oh, absolutely. I think that if you, as a GM, if you are particularly in a con game, just in general, if you have the idea that a scene is going to play out a certain way, then I don't think it's to anybody's advantage to uh, to actually, like, to drag it out. But just going back to the first point you made where you were, you were told that your character was going to do this or, or do that, I think that's probably the biggest violation of the... Uh, of the sort of unspoken rule that there is between players and 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 the GM, like the mm-hmm. the players will for the most part completely accept anything that the GM throws them, so long as it's in their environment and doesn't affect them. But as soon as a GM tries to take control of a character and tell them what's going to happen, I feel exactly the same way as you do. It's happened to me before as well. It just feels wrong that well, if if, you, if I'm not going to get a chance to do anything, I can't even fight back. Then then I'm then what's the then what's the point? I think as a GM, you have to take the time to figure out when a person gets to that sort of situation where you need something to happen, then you need to manufacture some kind of scene where there's no necessity for a, a role to happen. Or if the role happens, you've got to have, you know, if they, they beat the odds, you've really just got to run with it. If it's a con game, then you need to put them in a situation where it's, you know, there's, there's not any kind of conflict that's required in order to, to forward the story. But... Uh, Okay, my last question is, if you could be a character in any game, what character would it be and in what game? Huh. Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's hard to say, like, like what uh, like what class? Yeah, would you really like to be a, uh, like my ultimate would be to uh, play an FBI agent who was investigating the supernatural, like a Fox Mulder okay. type character. That would be my absolute ultimate. Um, if I could put myself into a game and be something, it would be that. Well, I, I mean, I like pulp games because I like games where you can have really big action and really over-the-top stuff but um, and, and be able to plausibly survive it because it's in the genre, not because your character is super awesome. Oh, this isn't a character. This is you. Oh, Karen Twelves yeah. finds herself mysteriously know. transported in a dream. Like, if you could choose the dream you were going to have, what would that dream be in terms of what character you were going to play in and, and what type of system? <laughs> I don't know. As long as I don't have to over-strategize, I'm really bad at that. So you just like I to be like a meathead in a, in a hack-and-slash game? Yeah, I'd hate to be caught in a, in a Shadowrun game. I'd be so screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my most vivid memory of Shadowrun is that there was a is when I was at university and there was a role playing club. Whenever there was the uh, with the Shadowrun game was on, like all these guys in long trench coats would come in with backpacks stacked full of books, like must have been like twenty pounds of books that they were each they were each carrying, getting these things out and dumping them on the table. They seemed to be having a great time, but I I could never really uh, get my head around so many books for for a game and, and being so into all of the, the intricacies in it but I think those type of games appeal to a certain type of uh, mind and having all those books is probably a good thing. That's the end of my uh, Inside the Role Players studio. So that's Karen, that's who we'll be talking to this evening. So I met Karen at uh, Gen Con in 2011 when I was running my one of my first games of Victoria. I'd run uh, some games at at Origins, but Karen and Sean and I think Keely, who I'm hoping to line up to be a guest on a on a following show, was was part of that session. Did you find that's pretty standard for Gen Con in terms of people showing up? Because it were just the three of you in the morning, and it worked out great. That was probably the session where the story went exactly as I had imagined. It's, it's not to say it's bad if it didn't, but with three people, like that dynamic just worked. You guys were all very gracious, and and the game really worked. But did you find that people didn't show up for for games or? Well, uh, I have to tell you, that was my first, it, first of all, it was my first time at Gen Con. It was my first big con. I've, I've normally just stuck to the tiny ones in my area that are like 30, 40, maybe 50 people. And there's not a lot of dropouts. So, and I actually just went to um, a, a larger regional con here in the Bay Area uh, called DunderCon for the first time this weekend, and there were a lot of people that like didn't show up for games either, which I just found personally really bizarre because I've been so used to these much smaller numbers which with much more limited seats. You really you show up. Um, yeah. It's also a much smaller community. Like, you know who didn't show up. You know that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so next time you see that guy, you're going to be like, why did you not show up to my game? 
So I, I was surprised, um, but it seems to be something that I, I saw over the weekend this time, too, is that lots of people don't show up and that people come by and crash. You know, they'll wait for those spots, those empty spots, and then they'll hop into that game. Yeah, it, it seems a bit uh, like... I know that you've paid to go to the con, but at the same time, if you've got a GM that's that's running a game and you're down to play the game, it's not doesn't just affect you if you don't go along. It affects anybody else that's in the game. If you've got a, a game that say requires five players, only three show up uh, because you haven't you haven't gone along, then it can have an effect on the other three people there as well. Not just your enjoyment, but but there's well, I suppose to a degree, the person running the game can't rely on that many people. But at the same time, you know, like I'd, I'd feel a bit. You know, odd not going along to something that somebody had planned for me to uh, for me to be at. Just talking about that um, session, I when you sat down to play, I saw you had this tag around your neck with media written on. It. I thought, I oh, this, this person's coming along to to to, uh, to like to review to review my game and, and go back and tell the world about whether it's is good or not. So for the first few minutes, I was kind of sweating, like, oh, have I done this right? Have I got? Oh no, I've got. I've only got one. I've only got one female character here, and there are two girls, which is totally a new experience uh, for me because when uh, when I was in university and that was about 20 years ago now well, maybe 15 might be more accurate um, I had there weren't that many ga- girls in the in the gaming club and so until the conventions I'd played with one girl when I was in in high school uh, we were playing Dragonlance and she was Tasselhoff I, I seem to recall but I hadn't really had a lot of experience role playing with with girls and so I thought well you know maybe if I've got one play one for six then that's probably going to be the right amount of girls but it transpired that I probably had about 50% girls 50% Mm -hmm. boys maybe a little bit less than and I don't know if that's because the type of game I was running with the Victoria and the Victorian era appeals more to females than it does to males or whether my um, experience with role playing is the far end of the scale where there are more girls than boys. Do you find that's the case, or because you, you said at high school there were there were five of you and three of you were girls? Is that your experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I I just never really experienced that when I was in high school. Um, there were three girls and two boys. When I was in college, you know, I played lots of World of Darkness games. There's normally another uh, female or two. Um, after college, I was in a regular game with, um, you know, the GM was female, there was another female in the game. So it wasn't actually until I moved back to Oakland about five years ago that I noticed when I would go to these little mini conventions that in in a, a room of maybe 30 to 40 people, there were three or, or four girls Maybe right. So you're uh, sort of at the other end of the. Uh, you're at the other end of the scale. Then, like you, you felt like, wow, it's, I wonder where all the girls are. And not, wow, look, there are three girls, which is yeah, just the scale. Like, where are all the women at? Like, I'm, I'm not sure where you went. Yeah, so, that, I mean, I, I know that they're out there. Um, because I, I've experienced that, but I'm, I'm not sure where they all went after high school. Now, you say you played the World of Darkness when you were in uh, in college. What was your what sort of uh, World of Darkness did you play? What was your favorite? Oh, I liked Werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I yeah, I played Werewolf a lot. We played some some vampire. Not none of the you know LARPing. We we still played it as uh, pencil and paper. Sure. Played um, some race. The, the fairy one, Changeling. Yeah, yeah. How did you find Wraith? Because Wraith was, of the books, Wraith was my favorite, but I could never get anybody to play it. I loved the, having the dynamic of the shadow there, but I think that, that probably, did you find that required a special sort of group of people to be able to carry that off? Yeah, you know, we only played it once, and it, it, didn't, it didn't go off with a lot of people. And then later we, we played a game once that had, like, that big mashup of you could be any World of Darkness character. So sure. the one guy that really liked Wraith got to be some sort of undead, and then the one person that really liked Changeling got to be a fairy character, and we had some bizarre crossover. I don't remember what that was called, but it, it was a thing where you could just play any of them. Yeah, that was one of the strengths of the storyteller system. The writers took pains to make sure that the that there could be the characters from any of the games in any game that somebody might run. And when I was I ran a vampire 
and I certainly had uh, aspects from all of the games in that. I thought that it added an interesting, you know, like having all those books available, it added a, a really good backstory to it. So I found that of all the role-playing systems, I thought that the effort that they put into the backstory of White Wolf really enriched the experience. And as I prefer character-driven games and, you know, deep backstory rather than go into this room and kill that monster and take its treasure. And, hey, where, why was that monster just sitting there on that pallet sleeping anyway? Like, what was it What was it all about, right? I didn't... I never really was one for uh, for hack for the hack and slash. I really I, that's one of the reasons that I liked Dragonlance because that story really hung together, and I hadn't really up until playing Dragonlance I hadn't really experienced an idea of a backstory. To mostly just you know like go in here, kill that, go there, kill that, get its treasure, and mm-hmm. and go on. So a World of Darkness was really you know they called it a renaissance in games, and in a way it was sort of a renaissance and or a renaissance, depending on how you like to pronounce it, in my, uh, in my role-playing experience, because that got me back into it. I was I went to the sort of the first session of the year for the role-playing club, and I got roped into a Dungeons & Dragons game, and I'm like, oh, this is terrible, just as bad as I remember. And then there's a, a mysterious chap who also, by the name of Chris, who also I'm hoping is going is to come on the show, and he was uh, must have been probably about five or maybe ten years older than us. He might not thank me for saying that. but And he was sitting there looking all mysterious with his crazy here doing his, his mage book and and the person that was supposed to run our session didn't show up so he said you know do you want to play and i'm like okay sure strange person so i made up a, a character for mage was a, a dream speaker and that game ran for two and a half three years and that's wow. far, far and away the best it was so good that we would that there can't have been very many weeks that we missed, even during school holidays, you know, university holidays, we even played then usually games sort of stop over holiday, but we, we played we played then it was just uh, it was just a magic confluence of, of players and, and a GM and it really worked out well. So that was probably my best role playing experience was with the World of Darkness and probably because of that extra good backstory and probably Chris also. What's the longest game that you've played? Have I played a, a campaign for a long time? Yeah, like where the same group of people have got together every yeah. week and then played just one particular character that carries through. Well, my um, you know, when I first started, I, I was you know when I was playing D D and D in high school, I, I carried that character for about three years, and that was a lot of fun. And then didn't really. I mean, kind of campaigned in in college, but not more than like two or three sessions before we kind of played something else. And then when I, um, in college was kind of the same, you know, it was just for a few months here and there, and then we would would kind of do something different. And then when I I came back from college uh, to Oakland, when I came back from grad school, rather, I played nothing but one-offs for years. Right. because I would just I would go to kind of games nights and things like that and just play one-off games. So I didn't campaign for a very long time, and I actually only really started campaigning again last year. So recently, I, I mean, I've played a Pathfinder game for a year now, and that's that's been pretty amazing for me, having just played years and years of one-offs. And so, what's the age group of your gaming group? Is it is it sort of across the board, or are they people that uh, that you knew ahead of time and then you? Then you started gaming, or they sort of uh, you put a, a poster up somewhere and said, "I want to be in a role-playing game," and somebody said, "So do I." And then you got a group together. Well, when I moved back here, I actually uh, there's there's a wonderful, wonderful gaming store called End Game, which is in downtown Oakland. Uh, well, in in old old Oakland, um, and it it used to be right near where uh, I lived for a while. When I moved back, it had moved, so I went and found it. And looked it up and was like, oh, they have this kind of, they have a games, a games weekend. They have this little mini convention. It's, you know, three bucks for, for a game. Sure, I'll go. And I went and I, um, I saw a game that I, I recognized a little bit, which was Spirit of the Century, which was a pulp game that I had heard of and was like, well, that sounds like fun. And I sat down and I played and it was the best game ever. Um, and it just really, it blew my mind for, for narrative games and, and the fate system was something I'd never played before. So it was so brand new and fun. And, and I, I met a lot of people at that table actually that I kept gaming with after that. Like I got their information and was, and was, I was really networking when I went there cause I was like, sure. I don't know anybody in this town. I need to game. So I, I went and really tried to, um, meet a lot of gamers and and you know those people i still hang out with now and i'm still in games with 
Sounds like you've got a good... uh, I I, I just went to a a local event and tried to get digits from people. Sure. (laughs) And not in a creepy, flirty way. (laughs) I like you. Let's hang out totally platonically. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that must be a little bit uh, tricky being a girl in gaming, trying to, uh, to get a group together without sort of sending the wrong messages. Sometimes, yeah. Although at this age group, most of the most of the um, male gamers that I know are married or already in long-term committed relationships. So actually, that threat has has long since disappeared. Good, because I know that a lot of uh, like I think that that can be threatening for uh, for some some girls seem to love it. I and now uh, I'm going back to my university gaming group here, but there was one girl that sort of took on the the role of trying to be everybody's you know, girlfriend, not necessarily in a serious way, but felt that. Yeah. Uh, that having all this male attention certainly did something for her well, self-confidence. Yeah, big fish in a small pond mm. complex. You get pretty girl complex. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a sickness, you know, when you when you get the pretty girl complex because you just start really treating people not as nicely. I'm late. So. <laughs> my, my daughter has just come down to tell me excitedly that she's, uh, that she's awake. It's her, her favorite thing ever. She just went to bed. Say, hello, Karen. Hello, Karen. After tucking my daughter back into bed, we continued. It's interesting how you find a lot of gamers don't know how to talk to people because gaming is such a social thing. You're sitting around with a group of people talking, and yet it's so hard for some people. Yeah, I, I've thought of the same thing myself. They don't ever go from being in the third person to being in the first person, right? Like they don't yeah. they say, my character this, my character that, rather than I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, and it's virtually impossible in some cases to get them to even put on a, a, put on a fake voice, which I think means they're missing part of the experience. Now, you were talking about your local shop, and I think that probably um, having a sort of a local gaming shop is a real nexus for for the hobby, perhaps more so than, than most others, because even though you can talk online with other people that are into role-playing, having that place where you know you can open up the books and buy the dice and, and meet other people is pretty important. And I know that around here we've, there are probably four or five in a city of a million, and there probably aren't that many shops around for hobbies that that have you know, a relatively small following that are able to sustain that. So do you, do you have a lot of shops around, around your place? or? Well, no. I mean, this is the only game store um, in, in Oakland. A lot of times we combine it with comic books, and, and I, I feel, or other, other things, other, other toys and, and yeah. stuff, and then it, it just becomes kind of a, a dark corner of another store that's just, comprise nothing, nothing but dark corners. I mean, Endgame is is the, the best store. It's and I'm just really lucky to to be in an area that has a nice store that has a wonderful uh, wonderful staff of people that are all very friendly, very knowledgeable, and really committed. Um, you know, and everybody that works there is a, a co-owner. They're not just they don't just hire you know some college kids for summer uh, to, to sit there and read comics while you come in and shop. Everybody's very knowledgeable and really committed and invested in the store. Yeah, that's, I think that's really important that you support your game store. It seems that there are so many games, people buy most of their games online nowadays, and, and I really think that, that's, that you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're going to save a couple of bucks on your game, but you're not going to actually have a place to go and meet people or any, even anywhere to do sort of many conventions like you were talking about before. Like I understand that you ran a, a fiasco convention recently at your local game shop. Um, well, what we did is the Endgame does events all the time, and I had really wanted for a long time to do some sort of combination between gaming and improv, which is another uh, one of my hobbies that I've only been doing for a few years. Um, and I, I immediately saw all of the overlaps between gaming and, and improv in how you uh, work well with other people and, and work to build a story. And I was getting kind of frustrated with um, running into the same types of people that were overprotective of their characters and really wanted to railroad their idea and didn't want to kind of build a story together but just wanted to have their own special thing going on. And I was like, man, these are all the types of things that when I was just doing Improv 101 were really, you know, I was really taught about how not to do these things. That's right, they're anathema to the whole idea. Why don't we teach gamers how to game a little bit? 
And so I, I put together a workshop with uh, some friends of mine and uh, my friend Mia, who is um, an amazing improv instructor, and uh, another friend of mine, Matthew, who's done both improv and gaming, and, um, and then uh, Sean, who's uh, kind of the, the all-gamer side of it. So we kind of had all-gamer, all-improver, and then some people in between uh, doing this thing. And so the first, and it was kind of a, a, a two-day event it, it turned into. So Saturday we had um, an improv workshop in the morning, and then we had we played some games of Fiasco in the afternoon. We picked Fiasco because it's just a, it's a really easy game, and it's all it's really it's all improv. It's it's all narrative, and it's all working together. It's all collaborative. Um, it's all storytelling, and it's a lot about playing unsafe and getting your characters into lots of trouble and really uh, enjoying that and promoting it and celebrating it. So we thought, well, this is a really great game to throw together all of these ideas that we've just been talking about with improv. And are you and planning to run anything else along those lines? Like, did you find it was successful? People uh, responded to it? great and and people loved it so much we're going to uh, do something similar we're going to give it a little bit more time actually for the improv portion of it in may and then sean is um has already gotten mia signed up to teach uh, just the class portion not the gaming part after but just the class at his convention in october big bad con so, okay what so tell me about a bit about Big Bad Con. I, I was on his uh, feed the other day there and he said that uh, he seemed to be sort of in the midst of organizing a million things at the same time. What's the story with Big Bad Con? Well, I think he's just getting game submissions now, which is really exciting because he finally uh, announced the date. Uh, so it's um, it's October uh, 5th through 7th of this year. Um, it's at the Oakland Airport Hilton. Um, and it's it's all RPG right now. It's RPGs and LARPs. Um, he's he's kind of thinking about board games, but I don't want to say if it is or isn't because I'm not sure. Um, and the other cool thing about it is it's a charity event. We filled a lot of barrels for the Alameda County Food Bank. Um, a fair amount of money went to Doctors Without Borders. And Endgame, actually, the, the store, they were the dealer's room. They donated 10% of their sales to Child's Play. So there were right. three different uh, charities benefiting from the convention. I think it had somewhere between 225 and like 250 attendees, and it was so much fun and just very high quality games, high quality players, um, very uh, very well organized. That's uh, something that people should definitely check out. Does, is there a website for that? They can go to find yeah, more it's, details. It's, uh, it's bigbadcon.com. Okay, I'm just writing that down. I'll put that in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, because I, I had a look uh, in the process of promoting Victoria. I know I'm always looking around for cons to go to. And it seems that most, and probably to get the most people there, but a lot of the, the major cons seem to be sort of middle of America. There's not so much going on on the, on the east and west coast. Is that accurate or am I just very well informed? You know, I, I wouldn't know because I just don't know a lot about the the cons that go on here. I don't I don't go to them. I know that there's um, a couple regional cons in the Bay Area. There's some in LA. So there are ones out here. I don't think that they draw any of the the numbers um, that some larger ones do. But um, I'm not the one to talk to about cons because I, I am only recently starting to attend them uh, to a larger scale. How did you feel about uh, setting up that? process of putting a con together something that's really difficult or it's it's something that you, you set out to do and then only discovered how difficult it was as you were doing it or like if people well, wanted to put together I, their own con say the improv for gamers was mostly just a bunch of emailing of you know emailing sean and, and mia and matthew and getting us together and actually doing it and planning it and you know just finding the the time and the space it, it was relatively easy because when you're playing fiasco you know you just grab a couple people and sit down we already knew how many people were attending it was only there were only 25 attendees because uh, that's as many people as we figured we could wrangle for an improv workshop which is a large group of people sure. for a workshop workshop the really cool thing about that weekend is actually when sean and i were at gen con we were um at a bar and Sean was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, this Jason Morningstar uh, who wrote Fiasco. Yes. I was like, oh, where? I have no idea who he is, but I'm friends with him on Facebook. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> he's, he's actually good friends with another friend of mine, and I had 
talk to him briefly about something else once on Facebook. So I was like, oh, I kind of know him. And we ran over to him and breathlessly, without any sort of elevator pitch, had had barely kind of decided that we were going to do this workshop. We're like, we want to do this improv thing, and we want to run fiasco with it, and we want to, you know, we, we so we want to publicize it, you know, with fiasco and kind of use that as a draw. What do you think? Is that okay that we kind of use your game? Does it sound cool to you? And it was so awkward, and we were, you know, sweating and... <laughs> talking over each other and 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 jason is sitting there like very politely listening to us and i thought for sure that he would say something just like well i'll have to check with my lawyers or something just ridiculous oh. um and he looked at us and he was like that sounds awesome and i want to come like oh my god that's so cool so we um actually everything that we made off of that covered um uh, paying Mia for her time for being an instructor, paying for Jason's plane ticket, and I think um, taking us all out for breakfast. It was perfect. Don't get um, into a con to make money. Yeah, well, I wasn't running it to try to actually make money. We just had to charge something. Um, and then we were like, well, that's what we're going to you know, spend it on is to, for his plane ticket to get him out here. And then a little while later, he said, uh, so Steve uh, Segedy, who um, you know, is also with Bully Pulpit Games and had come in and done a lot on the Fiasco Companion book, had also um, heard about Jason talking about this and wanted to come. And he said, you know, well, the two of them would split the cost of, of Steve's ticket. You know, we would still cover Jason's ticket. They both crash at my place. I had these two guys that, you know, I was totally just like nerd famous. I can't believe they're actually in my house. <laughs> yeah, you're on my couch. <laughs> I'm washing those and, cushions uh, again. And they came out and they were so much fun and they were just the nicest people ever. And they, to make their weekend worthwhile, they kind of put together a little fiasco mini con on Sunday. So improv and fiasco for our small group on Saturday right. and then kind of a little open convention of just playing fiasco all day on Sunday with them. Sounds and perfect. It was so much fun. It's as well that you didn't have a big pitch, you know, prepared because that might have put him a little bit on the back foot. I think as a as a designer I can't imagine anything more battering than having a group of people rush up to you and say how, you know, they think your game is wonderful and would it be okay for you to use it? I, I can't think of a reason why somebody wouldn't want that, but I think it was just one of those serendipitous occasions that, that worked out for everybody. Yeah, it was great. And again, he, he's one of the nicest guys. He and Steve were so much fun uh, just to hang out with and, and talk to and play with as well. And um, the he Jason's actually, I, I think, and again, I don't want to confirm anything, I think he's going to be coming out for a big bad con, which will be super cool. Um, I don't know what Steve's plans are. Um, and unfortunately, we won't get to have them when we run the improv workshop again in May. But he was super excited about an idea of an improv workshop for gamers only. And I take this idea to some other uh, people that he knows in other cities and kind of try to get it to happen there. And I think all you really need is a, is a good improv instructor and um, get them to play a few games so they you're talking about and then it, it, it all clicks i've totally converted mia in the process to a gamer she wasn't a gamer when we first started talking and, and she definitely is now pointed out before like that seems like an obvious sort of marriage the idea of improv role-playing maybe it's not for the guys that are hardcore and like all the, the rolling personally just the idea of people right into their their characters and being so concerned about living lives that fun happens i've, I've often Considered writing a game where you know your character dies at the end, you know that your your character is going to to die, then you're not so so precious with them, right? You're not so um, so careful, and and some of the best role playing comes out of people making you know selfless selfless sacrifices. Being being prepared to let go of your, your character like that, I think it makes it a freeing and, and ultimately rewarding experience. So, just going back to what you're saying about fiasco, getting people to be a bit freer with the way that they the characters might that once they get over that initial fear that they may enjoy what comes out of it. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, especially with con games, there's no point in, in playing it safe and trying to preserve your character because you're only going to have them for, you know, those few hours. I understand if you're if you're in um, uh, a campaign, I'm certainly much more protective of my campaign characters. 
but um, I also like getting them in lots of trouble. And, uh, and I, I also kind of feel with, with campaigns is, um, yeah, everybody's a little bit more invested. But with, with one-offs, you really should be trying to, you know, have a, have a really big finish and not worry so much about if your character survives, but, you know, how's the story going to end? That's, that's always the way that I, well, not always, but oftentimes, not so much with the game of Victoria because I wanted to, well, first of all, because I was promoting, I wanted people feel that the, that the game had legs, but most of the con games that I've written in the past, I write it so that it, it creates major conflict within the characters because in a regular, you don't have the freedom to not like the other people. You kind of have to try and get along with them whether you do or you don't. So most of the con games that I, I write are very light and out like Reservoir Dogs, where all of the where the characters have backstories and they various fatal conflicts at the end of the session. If you can make people's deaths not senseless, you know, like you, you don't, as you were saying before, you don't handcuff and say, like, this bad thing's going to happen to your character and there's nothing that you can do, then, yeah. you know, that can be sort of liberating for them when they when they feel that they kind of going to go for three hours, so I'm going to make the most of it. and mm-hmm probably a, a good thing to keep in mind when when writing con games have you have you written any con games yourself written one game um and run it twice at a, at a convention and it was it was terrifying and exhilarating and i i don't know if i can do it again um i i wrote a game called schizo and i actually made up a very easy die mechanic for it so it's entirely homegrown right. um, and it was it was this multimedia game i i wanted to write a horror game um that forced characters to stay in character as much as possible and do very little metagaming and try to keep the characters pretty much LARP as much as they could. Um, all the characters were schizophrenics in a hospital, and it was a very kind of simple setup and simple premise to the game, and the whole point of it that I told them going in it was this is all about how you interact with each other. And that's, you know, that's the story, is how do you guys interact with each other? I set it up so that there were lots of conflicts, lots of things that they wanted from each other, so the characters were all tailor-made. And then they, because they were all schizophrenic, all of the characters, all the players, sorry, had an MP3 player with 20 tracks loaded on it. Um, and each track was anywhere from, I think, 6 to 10 minutes long of noises. Um, not the whole way through. It would be silent, and then, you know, there would be uh, a sound. Some of it was ambient sounds. Uh, some of it was voices. Um, I had a lot of fun with my friends recording those. I got a lot of my improv friends to record all sorts of crazy stuff. So we had voices uh, talking to the characters, talking about the characters, telling them to go different places, giving them encouragement, giving them encouragement at them comforting them nice. and and i would tell the players what track to go to and i would change it um throughout the game so that they would have different things that sounds intricate on. did it take a long time to uh, get that to work like did you have to roll did you have to play test it a few times to get everything to fit together right <laughs> i've run it i yeah i i play tested it and then i i ran it at a convention and then um i went to back to the same it was this little 30 person horror convention that a friend of mine um doing called Dead of Winter, which is a lot of fun. It's in its third year right now, and it's it's a Bay Area. Um, is there a website for that if people wanted to attend? Oh, my gosh. It's, well, it's invitation only because it's so small. Sounds very exclusive. Um, but it's, it's called Dead of Winter, and I'm trying to remember now what Matt's website is. His website, I believe, is terrorrabbit.com. You should have all the information there. Expect to go because it's exclusive. Yeah, my website is terrorrabbit.com, and that has all of, um, his name is Matthew Steele, that has all of his different um, projects on it, and Dead of Winter is one of them. You've got a full calendar there on the uh, on, over on the West Coast there in terms of being able to get to conventions and get together and, and game. That's certainly not the case here. Uh-huh. I don't even know if there is a convention here in, in Edmonton. I mean, you've got a lot more people to draw from, I suppose, but it must be, uh, it's, it's great that you've got such a good there in terms of support and breadth of the type of games you can run. Very lucky to live where I do as a gamer. It's great. What sort of advice would you give to somebody who wanted to either write a game that girls appreciated or encourage players in general, not even just girls, because your mm-hmm. so say your community is pretty large and you know, it seems like a lot of people are, are, are remaining involved. Do you have any advice for 
people trying to get groups together? Hard to say because I can't, you know, speak on what all, you know, gamers who are female enjoy. I, I don't know if there's a type of game that women like more. If there is, I, I, I'm not the spokesperson. I mean, to say, <laughs> to say that many women may not like tactical military games is true, but I think there's many male gamers who also don't like tactical military games. Put my hand up there. You know, <laughs> Same as asking, well, what genre of books do you like? If you like reading a certain type of story, you're going to like creating a certain type of story. If you like watching certain types of movies, then you might want to star in that type of movie. Oh. So if there's GMs who are saying, oh, I don't know how to run games for women, I, I think the, the real issue is that they may not interact with women. Because <laughs> um, if you know your friends, you're going to be able to suss out what types of games they want to play favorites that your friends like that you like you run them at cons you don't have to appeal to everyone you know it's good to actually kind of have to be known for maybe a niche like oh that gm runs great tactical military games gm runs really great heist games that's going to attract the right kind of people regardless of gender so what about uh, if you were going to give advice to girls that wanted to get into role playing it might be more your wicket one of the hardest things, especially when, you know, when I was younger, that I, I think if you're single and you're playing with lots of single guys, is um, everybody at the table needs to understand the difference between real life and game narrative. <laughs> you know, flirting with you in game doesn't yeah. mean that I'm flirting with you in real life. Yeah, it's very confusing. Yeah, that's Both and like parties. You st- mm. <laughs> well. It, it's- it's very confusing. It's really easy to get mixed signals, both to, to give them and get them. And, and I think it's important to um, not take that seriously. You know, romance can be really good for a story, but that doesn't mean that you're actually asking that person out on a date. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. I think that, um, yeah, and that probably is it because they're, for the most part, like I've probably heard, you've probably heard people say that guys don't have girls that are friends and girls don't have guys that are friends. Not really. There's always, there's always some sort of tension there. And yeah. I guess that, that <laughs> when they, when they get to the, to the gaming table, there is the possibility for those mixed messages. People go in there with that understanding. You know, it's not like you're at work where you've kind of got a flirty thing going on with, with somebody who's there, right? Like it's, when you get to the table, it's, you know, it's all acting, yeah. right? And that must be intimidating. Tried to look at my gaming circle as a dating pool. Actually, I, I actually feeling very hypocritical in that I am now dating a gamer that I I did meet in my social circle because I I actually hadn't really been looking for that um, for the express purpose of I didn't you know want my hobby to also be you know my my meat market. Oh. Weird. In that respect, I'm very I'm very envious that you would that you meet somebody who who shares a, an interest. I know that I have a great deal of difficulty explaining even the fundamentals of what's going on to my my wife. We've been we've been married now for for 13 years and and or at least together for for 13 years. And I mm-hmm. and she I don't think she knows thing one about it. And I've tried to explain her, and she just gets this faraway look in her eye. And and then <laughs> and then that's basically the end of the conversation. I don't think it's complex, but like Neil Diamond, it's something you either like or you you don't understand um, and I think that yeah, I, I, I think that's very true I think and it's also something that you have to you can't understand it until you do it I've had friends that are like well what is gaming I don't understand it and I, we kind of trick them into gaming a little bit we say okay well imagine <laughs> you are at the side of the road you're in a tattered hospital gown you have a gun in your hand and you can hear dogs barking what do you do like, oh, uh, I run. Okay, you run. You uh, find a fence. What do you do? I try to climb over it. Okay, well, here, take this six-sided die and roll it. <laughs> Wait, what hang on. What? <laughs> what's this dice what's this and, and it, it Because I can't explain to it. I can't explain it to them without, you know, doing it. So right there and I've tried to get my I tried to get my pet well when you when you're young you know you want to do role playing but you don't necessarily have any friends that are handy so you try to get your brother or your mother or your your father to play and in the first podcast I talk about how that really didn't go very well for my uh for my for my mum and dad at all but but uh yeah so one of the things I spoke with uh with them about was do you ever experience anybody who was opposed to role playing no I haven't um and, and I'm certainly familiar with the, the idea of people being opposed to role-playing. I, I mean, the only thing I've ever had is just the, the negative social stigma of it being, you know, a, a thing for nerds. never had anybody really be against it. 
In fact, most of the people that I've talked to nowadays, and I don't know if it's just the way that um, that I talk about it and I'm very excited about it, or just that you know we're all a little bit older and less judgmental, tend to be really excited and, and curious about it. Mm. I know that, um, yeah, that's still uh, something that I struggle with to this day, thing like gay say for example but you know i still get that that feeling like i'm sort of in the closet as a as somebody who who does who does role playing and people ask because i I find i just don't want to make the effort to have to explain it yeah well there's that too but you know i'm like i don't i don't have a good elevator pitch for this right now i i don't supposed to be like trying to grow our shrinking hobby by personable ambassador Role playing, and you're just like, oh, no, I can't I'm be bothered. Not helping my own cause. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess when you get a little bit older, you're less worried about finding people to game with because your, your circles come a little, become a little bit tighter. But that you're, you're you're doing us all a disservice, Karen. You need to uh, step up to the plate. Okay, one. Very much for taking the time to talk to me this evening. If you're willing, I'd definitely like to get you on again. Perhaps closer to uh, some of the conventions, you can pimp those again and. Let us know oh, how sure. you're. Uh, let us know if you maybe ran that game again with the with the music tracks. I think that sounds absolutely fascinating. But my last question for you is, if you were going to be one of the dice, which dice would you be? Um, I would have to be a D12. That was Karen Twelves, and that does it for episode two of Penny Red. Next week, I'll be speaking with Keely Taylor, who I met in the same Victoria game as Karen. We're going to talk about playing neutral evil characters, one shot Cthulhu, and marrying a gamer. Mm-hmm.